0: When I tried eHarmony a million years ago, it told me that I was part of the small share of the population who cannot be matched with anyone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just want to note, as Matt said, that he began playing with his wedding ring.
0: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius. Today, we have a, a jam-packed episode. We got Sarah Cliff here. We've got Ezra Klein here, but also via remote, Dylan Matthews oh, wow. cuz we're going to talk, talk about we're going to talk about his that, that was an sponsor. unexcited
1: woo. I know
2: I'm excited. Woo.
0: He's got go. a blockbuster <laughs> scoop about Social Security Disability Insurance claiming that actually it's good. Um, and also, we have a new Trump budget. Dylan is a, not only a disability uh, maven, but probably like the, <laughs> the, the most informed budget guy we've got. Uh, so, most informed budget guy anywhere anywhere. The only budget That's expert that matters. Go crazy. And
1: we have an amazing we have oh, no. honestly my favorite research paper we've maybe even had on the weeds. Uh, this, wow. pa- this paper on Danish gender wage gaps has changed my view. Danish on
2: administrative data, man. It's
1: really good. But yeah. we're going to talk about gender wage gaps. This is some ex- a really, really, really interesting new research about where it comes from. I'm excited. I'm pumped. You should be pumped, too. But why don't we start on the budget? And, and I think to, to go through this, we're going to go around and just sort of We're each going to go through, like, what stood out to us in the budget. And Dylan, as the single human being alive who knows the most about budgets, going to start with you. I
3: have to apologize to some people at the Center on Budgets. We're sorry, Bob Um, Greenstein. We didn't mean it. I think the most—so a lot of this was continuous with last year, that there was a lot of uh, promises to repeal and replace Obamacare as a part of that really drastic cuts— to Medicaid, uh, they introduced some cuts to Medicare this year. I think the most consequential and least covered part of this is that there are about forty percent cuts to both the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Institutes of Health, and these are programs that have wide bipartisan support. The idea of the government doing basic research into health sciences to try to discover diseases. And trying to monitor diseases so we don't have huge pandemics that kill millions of people seem like areas of of democratic and republican agreement but the issue is that they're trying to squeeze out a balanced budget while doing remarkably little on social security doing remarkably little on medicare and substantially increasing the defense budget and that just doesn't leave a lot of spending left over for everything else in the federal government. And so even programs like like scientific research on... Uh, the non-defense discretionary side wind up getting squeezed.
1: Can I ask you one quick thing on this, Dylan? So you're yeah. saying they're trying to squeeze out a balanced budget, um, but but you had a good thing to be digging into the tables of this, where as far as I can tell, virtually everything the budget does to get down towards balance is coming from insane economic growth projections. And if
3: you just use normal ones, it, it goes away. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. So it's it, at the very least, it it dramatically reduces how much deficit reduction uh, they produce. I think the, the earliest numbers we've gotten on this from an unbiased source, since I I don't trust the White House's numbers on this, which is a few years ago I did, and even in the Bush administration I did, uh, but uh, the least biased numbers we have are from uh, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Um, Mark Goldwine, their budget walk, um, who knows more about budgets than I do, uh, came out with a report. Impossible. If, if possible. And he did find some residual Uh, Deficit reduction, but he found that it doesn't uh, change the overall trajectory of uh, debt to GDP, that U.S. debt to GDP continues to rise and that sort of trillions of dollars in claim savings are a mirage caused by assuming that we're going to get 3% growth when every forecaster who's credible assumes we're going to get somewhere between 1.4 and 2.2% growth. All right, Matt, what blew you away about the budget? And I'm hoping you say infrastructure.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Donald Trump and infrastructure. And I think we want to do an infrastructure week episode in the future. But finally, but suffice infrastructure it to week. say that after two years, I would say of discussion of Donald Trump's $1 trillion infrastructure plan, this budget on net cuts infrastructure spending.
1: And I don't, how come I keep hearing about a $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan? I honestly plan have no idea.
0: <laughs> I, like, it, it. Could because a White House official—they did this briefing call over the weekend where they were like, we're going to tell you the details of our $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan. And then they described a $200 billion infrastructure plan. And many headline writers simply agreed to go along with this, and I, I don't know why. But separately, the— infrastructure plan spends $200 billion, but the rest of the budget cuts more than $200 billion from funding. So for example, they assume that the Federal Highway Trust Fund, which has been running out of money, will simply be allowed to run out of money, and then there won't be a highway trust fund anymore. Um, I, I don't it's it's confusing. And then it, the whole Trump administration is such a shit show that like yesterday, separate from the budget and also separate from the Trump infrastructure plan, Elaine Chow, the transportation secretary, put over like a memo about how she thinks they should replenish the highway trust fund. So Nobody knows what's going on or or what is behind anything. But just like long story short, there is no infrastructure spending boost plan. Can you
1: break down, though, in the $200 billion plan, both what's there and how they get to the 1.5 number? Because I I, I think it's worth just a quick loss. I really can't.
0: (laughs) I mean, so there's $200 billion. Once upon a time, it seemed like they were saying the $200 billion were going to go to like an aggressive matching program and that that was going to leverage up. 200 billion to 1.5 trillion. So states would get help if they would kick some in. Right. But in the actual plan, only half of the $200 billion even goes to that. So you would have to assume that $100 billion of federal matching grants inspires 1.3 trillion of state and local. Extra spending, but they also say explicitly that they plan to double count money that state governments were already spending. So I don't. Like,
2: other than and like, what's the match usually like? So Just in, to put this t- t- in, context. so in a typical
0: highway program, the federal government pays eighty percent of the cost. In a transit program, they pay fifty percent of the cost. They're talking about flipping it to the feds. Are paying twenty percent or maybe ten percent? It, it really makes no. I I don't even understand as an exercise why you would try to reason this back to the $1.5 number. Because, like, another thing in there is that they want to dedicate some money to saying that there's a thing called private activity bonds, which is where you issue a tax-exempt municipal bond. But instead of the money going to, like, an actual local government, it goes to a private company that's building some kind of piece of infrastructure, uh, like a sports stadium, uh, for example— So they propose to lift the cap on how much private activity bonds you're allowed to do. So that's basically a tax cut, right? So the headline cost of that tax cut is modest. And I guess you might want to count the full value of all bonds issued under that as like part of the Trump plan. But— I don't know. I think That's just bad math, right? Like, you're not going to see a like quintupling of the number of airports built in the United States by changing the tax treatment of airports. You're going to give—maybe there'll be a little bit more construction, but, like, it's basically a tax cut. Also, One none of this is going to pass. On,
1: on airports. Yes. Are they going to privatize all of our airports?
0: Um, they propose privatizing some airports. Dulles, right? Reagan? Uh, yeah. Why? Why? Um, well, this is international best practices is to have uh, – in, like in Europe, most airports – it's complicated because if you look at it, most European airports are privatized, which is to say the corporate structure – of like the Frankfurt Airport is a private company, but then we don't get who owns the Frankfurt Airport. It's like two German states between them own seventy percent of the shares, and then some of it floats on a private stock market. Uh, in Sweden, the Stockholm Airport is privatized, but it's owned by a state-owned entity. Um, so. That, I think, would be the likely outcome here, right? If um, DCA were privatized, it might be owned by Arlington County, D.C., and, like, some pension fund somewhere, something like that. Um, Anyway, that is a more interesting proposal than the $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan, simply in the sense that you could imagine the federal government actually doing it. I think that they probably won't. Uh, In the United States, there tends to be... um, A lot of ideas that free market think tanks cook up are bad for rural areas, and therefore Republican politicians don't actually want to do them, uh, and so they wind up not passing. Some of Trump's proposals have that character. But, like, basically my takeaway from the budget is the trillion-dollar infrastructure plan does not exist. $1.5 trillion. Yeah, it still doesn't exist. Sarah Cliff.
2: Maybe I shouldn't be surprised at this, but the um, return of Graham Cassidy, the last Republican. Oh, nominee. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was
1: surprised by that. So
2: uh, so we have this budget that comes out. And one of the things that's in it is this um, plan that was introduced, gosh, like over about a year, a plan that started to be worked on about a year ago. Six
1: to eight weeks ago. Everything in Trump time is very nearby. What?
2: Don't don't compress that part of it. That, that part of my life was longer than six to eight weeks. So there's this proposal from Senators um Bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham that kind of was the last Republican health care plan standing, which is how I described it. I think in September or so, when there were kind of like the death rattles of um the Obamacare repeal debate. Of course, those weren't actually the death rattles of the repeal debate. And I was interested and surprised, um, you know, after we've really seen congressional Republicans seeming to throw in the towel on Obamacare repeal and saying, you know, we got rid of the individual mandate, essentially starting to message individual mandate repeal as as Obamacare repeal, and Trump doing that, too. You know, in the State of the Union a few weeks ago, he talked about how they got rid of the most terrible part of the Affordable Care Act, that graham Cassidy is suddenly— back in the mix of this budget. And um, the it, it, one of the key things to know about Graham-Cassidy is it's a really drastic cut to the Medicaid program. What it essentially does is it takes all the money that is spent on Obamacare subsidies, on Medicaid, rolls that up to an, a big block grant and tells states, okay, you can pick from a menu of options or just do pretty much whatever you want with this amount of money, it also cuts the amount. It's not like they're just taking the subsidies, the Medicaid, giving states the same amount with flexibility. It um, um, uses—Dylan wrote wrote about this a little bit in his explainer on the budget—it uses some pretty slow growth formulas that create pretty drastic cuts. So even, um, you know, we've already seen a lot of activity from the Trump administration on Medicaid with work requirements, with— with exploring lifetime limits on how long you can be in Medicaid. And I think this, you know, like Dylan wrote about these budgets, you know, there's nothing about this budget that suggests it is going to become law. But it is a position of policy, is a position of what the Trump administration thinks is important. And it appears from this document, they think it is still important to repeal the Affordable Care Act and make some drastic cuts to Medicaid.
1: One of the things that surprised me in the budget was something we didn't have last year, which was changes to Medicare spending, yeah, which are changes as far as I can tell that health wonks some are, are more open to, but they are still what we, you would call in politics cuts to Medicare, yeah. which is something Donald Trump promised you would not have.
2: Yeah. And they're kind of interesting. They actually, some of them take in the Obama tradition of this idea of trying to make the program more efficient. I remember, um, you know, back eons ago, um, candidate Romney would constantly hit the Obama administration for cutting—I don't know why I remember the number—for cutting $716 billion for Medicare. Um, and he was right. You know, it wasn't a benefits cut. There was no, you know, doctor appointments being cut, but it was a cut that would take place by changing the way that doctors are paid. So there's some of that going on in the Trump budget. There are some things around the margins with how Medicare pays for drugs that The analysis I've seen says they probably won't move the needle. One of the things we saw Alex Azar, the new HHS secretary, say recently is he felt like we really needed to cut the list price of drugs and the reforms proposed in the budget. They are not going to do that. But it is, you know, it's interesting. Medicaid, I think, has been much more vulnerable and typically is the more vulnerable program, although I think it's been actually quite resilient in the Obamacare debate, but Bringing me- Medicare cuts are never very popular, so it's interesting to see the administration bringing those into the budget. But also actually, you know, following in the footsteps of the Obama administration a little bit and how they want to make some of those cuts. All, all right. right, Ezra,
1: what do you got? My turn. Finally. Wait through all your stuff. now. Um, so you guys have actually, I think, hit on a lot of the important policy here. I think the one thing we should mention that, that Dylan touched on, too, is just this massive increase to defense spending. Which drives a lot of what else happens in the budget. I, I've written before, and it turns out this is not a new observation to me. Paul Krugman had it a long time ago. But that if you look at the way the federal government spends money, it's basically the world's largest insurance company, but it also has an army. Like, that's what happens. And that's where all the money goes. But so if you're not going to cut the the major, major, major social insurance programs, right? So Social Security, and while there are Medicare cuts, they're not that big, um, what and you're going to increase defense spending, well, what are you left with then? So they are driving a knife into what kind of social insurance is left. So they're they're really gutting uh, Medicaid, Obamacare, food stamps, all kinds of things like that, non-defensive discretionary spending, which includes infrastructure. That's why that goes so far down. And it's why they need these crazy economic growth numbers. There's there's just a um, mathematical logic to if you are not going to hit Medicare Social Security very hard and you're going to... rapidly increased defense spending, it is very, very, very hard to get to a balanced budget, which, of course, they don't actually do. But the other thing that I want to note about the budget, which is also within its context, is this is a really weird budget. So a couple days before the budget, on Friday, Donald Trump signed into law... The uh, bipartisan budget deal that had come through the House and the Senate that, that earlier that week, that was a deal that busted these budget caps, these spending caps we've been living under for a number of years now, increased uh, spending over the next two years by $300 billion, um, a bit more than half of that going to defense. Uh, it, it was a deal that had bipartisan support, had Democrats on it. Conservatives, sort of fiscal conservatives, are really angry about it. There are all these articles that came up in conservative publications. You know, the Tea Party has been repealed by Donald Trump. What's fascinating here is that Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney, who used to be a a Tea Party congressman, is now Trump's budget director. He then releases this budget, which is not like that at all. It's it's what you would think of as a Tea Party-style austerity budget, Um, even though the administration is going in a different direction. On a Sunday show that weekend, he says if he had been in the House, he would not have voted for the spending deal. So this is a place where the Trump administration is going in multiple directions simultaneously. I mean there's even – Weirder stuff. If you, there's just like literal contradictions between the spending spending deal and the budget. But the reason I think this is important is that there is John Kelly, the chief of staff, is considered to be quite under fire. Weekend, I don't think he's going to go very soon, but. It is increasingly believed that he is not super long for this administration. He's got a lot of enemies internally. People are upset at how far he's pulled Trump to the right on immigration. People are upset about the way he controls access to Trump, particularly given how much that access to Trump changes Trump's mind about things. So John Kelly is in some trouble. When people talk about who might become chief of staff if John Kelly left, Mulvaney is one of the names you always hear mentioned. He's one of the front runners for that. And if Mulvaney becomes Donald Trump's chief of staff, um, and it's Mulvaney whispering in his ear all the time, and one of the reasons his name gets mentioned is Mulvaney good at talking to Trump. Trump likes talking to him. He listens to Mulvaney. So then you'd have somebody who is still very committed to the Tea Party-ish fiscal austerity, cut-all-the-social programs approach to politics – being the driving force of what Trump sees, who he talks to, what the administration's agenda is. And that could really matter because Trump himself is so fluid on policy and so uninterested in the details that he gets pushed in a lot of directions. So there's been talk, um, you know, people going back and forth on should you take a budget like this seriously. One, I think you should just take the administration's governing documents seriously. But the other is that because Mulvaney uh, is considered a rising power in the administration and could potentially become chief of staff … If the Trump administration was increasingly oriented towards this vision of governance, that would actually be different, um, at least on some level than what we're seeing now, and certainly different on the margins. What it would empower people like Paul Ryan to prioritize would be interesting. So I, I thought it was interesting that there was not more effort made to create coherence here. Um, I heard a lot of people on the right saying this shows Mulvaney's been weakened, but but I think of it a little bit more like Mulvaney's holding fire um, and showing that this is still this is still the agenda, even if it's not been followed lately. You could very much imagine coming in after Kelly or after someone else and saying, well, finally, we're returning back to what we've always been saying we were, which is Tea Party conservatism. So I think the politics of it are interesting. Um, With that— Let's take a break and
0: talk talk about disability really complements a crisp, cool winter morning, quite like a, a nice cup of coffee. Uh, and, you know, not just any coffee, really delicious, flavorful coffee that's going to change the way you, you look at coffee. And that's what Blue Bottle Coffee delivers. Uh, they now provide the most delicious coffee in the world right to your door. They ship your coffee beans within 48 hours of roasting, so it arrives at an incredible level of peak freshness. And, you know, I, I can really say, I, the first time I tried Blue Bottle, it's really good. I mean, there's, there's coffee, and then there's Blue Bottle coffee. Um, they, they've got an insane level of dedication They they search the planet far and wide to secure exclusive relationships with independent growers all over the world to source only the most delicious and sustainable coffee there is. And if you're worried about flavor, they've got this coffee match quiz where you find the perfect coffee just for you from blends to espresso to single origins. Uh, They've got it all. Uh, And just like having fresh, amazing coffee that's been customized to your palate is going to make a real difference in your life. So it's not just like a drag caffeine addiction, but an actual pleasant, uh, amazing experience. So hurry to Blue Bottle Coffee dot com slash weeds and you get ten dollars off your first coffee subscription order that's bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds bluebottlecoffee.com slash weeds
1: So one of the debates that has been playing out both in in politics, qual politics, and in the world of policy commentary, and particularly the world of policy reporting over the past couple of years, is a debate over Social Security Disability Insurance. And and this is a big program. Uh, quite a lot of Americans are on it. Dylan, what? How many Americans are
3: on SSDI? Um, there are about 10.6 million of whom about 8.8. Million are workers who qualified based on their work history. The rest are sort of children and spouses who get benefits.
1: So this is a big program, and it's become in the past couple of years a very controversial program. the The, the program has seen a lot of growth, um, and there have been these very big reports. This American Life and Planet Money did one. Uh, there have been some in the Washington Post that have looked at the program and seen in it a hotbed of. It might be too strong to say that the word is fraud, although a lot of Republicans have have argued that there was a lot of fraud. But what they've been arguing is that SSDI has become a kind of long-term unemployment insurance. It's become something where people who live in towns where there aren't a lot of jobs, people just don't want to work. They go on SSDI, and now they're getting a check from the government because they have mystery back pain or mystery mental illness, and that – this has been wrapped up in a very Trumpian narrative, a narrative of watching your neighbors, you know, get get a government check when you're sitting here working your butt off. Uh, it, it's become a, a real flashpoint, and so you do see efforts among Republicans, particularly, to cut it. But but also, it's come to symbolize a way in which. Not just social policy, but labor policy is failing because we've created this program where people don't work in order to get SSDI, and you know this is part of why these white working class communities are ravaged. It's part of why people dislike each other because the government has become a hammock, uh, encouraging dependence. And Dylan, you, you you have dug in on this question over the past year and, and written, I think, the single best piece I've seen anywhere on this. So what it, what what is the answer here? Is SSDI what, what is the role SSDI plays, and, and does that narrative
3: that has emerged get it right? Sure. So I think the first important thing to understand is that the SS part of SSDI is super important, that this is a part of the social security system. Unlike some other programs for people with disabilities, this is something you have to pay into. You have to have a significant work history of at least a sort of 10 years or so uh, before you qualify for benefits like this. Uh, and- so it's, it's meant to be a social insurance program the same way that old age insurance is. We're all going to get old. We're all at risk of developing a disability that impairs our ability to work. And so the idea is you pay a share of your income in a payroll tax uh, into this insurance system. And then if you, at a future date, develop a disability that limits your ability to continue working, you can claim that money and uh, reduce your work hours or drop out of the workforce. What I found looking at the data on this, there's there's sort of been this debate in academia parallel to the political debate. And I want to be clear that within academia and among people who know things about this program, like fraud means something specific. It's like non-disabled people or people who clearly do not qualify trying erroneously to get on. And I don't know of a single serious person who thinks that that's a problem. The, the dispute is over what kinds of people with severe disabilities can be expected to work and whether too many people with severe disabilities are being put on this program versus expected to work. So there was a, a debate that was sort of launched by two economists. Uh, one is David Otter, who I think people who listen to this podcast uh, probably will have heard of. He's also known for a lot of work on the effects of trade. Um, he and Mark Duggan at at Stanford Uh, wrote a paper, and the subtitle was A Fiscal Crisis Unfolding, sort of warning that this program was was growing out of control. And their theory was that it had something to do with somewhat loosening eligibility standards uh, related to diagnoses that don't lend themselves to objective criteria. So one thing you can get SSDI for is blindness. Um, If you find that your blindness uh, makes it impossible for you to uh, participate in the labor force, we know how to tell if someone's blind or not. Uh, it's There are necessarily some subjective uh, conditions, musculoskeletal conditions, which sometimes get conflated with back pain but are, are much more severe and tend to include things like herniated discs, uh, mental illness like sort of severe schizophrenia or bipolar, um, things that really can reduce or eliminate your ability to participate in the workforce as I think people who know people with conditions like that could tell you, um, but where diagnosis is trickier. And so Otter and Duggan, their hypothesis was that uh, there were loosening eligibility standards, which led to a gradual increase in use of the program, and that if you didn't stop this at some point, uh, it was going to grow out of control and we wouldn't be able to afford it. On the other side of things were people uh, like Stephen Goss, who's the the chief actuary for the Social Security Administration, um, a lot of other actuaries who've worked on the program, who looked at the growth in the program and said, this is a totally predictable result of a bunch of factors uh, in the labor force over recent years. So one is that the labor force is aging. Uh, As people get older, they're more likely to develop disabilities. Uh, And as the baby boomers moved through the age distribution and that sort of large chunk of the population grew older, they grew more likely to be disabled, which you would expect. And and indeed, you saw an increase in in people using the program as a result of that. Uh, Another factor is uh, the increased uh, enrollment of women in the program, that women working more means more women have the work history to qualify for this program. Which leads to a greater incidence, sort of across the population, of, of disability insurance receipt, uh, and and so their story was a demographic story. Uh, this is a predictable effect of aging. We've known for years that aging is going to cost the government money as this population sort of moves first to sort of late working years where disability is common, and then to retirement. And you should expect. Uh, levels of, of enrollment to level off or or fall after the baby boomers start heading to retirement uh, and off of the program.
0: But then the other thing that happened right is there was a huge recession right
3: because I mean
0: because I mean part of I, I would say a theme of a lot of the narrative reporting on this, which it looks to me from your piece is borne out in the data is that disability, as defined by SSDI, is in part like a medical condition, but it's in part like a macroeconomic phenomenon.
3: That goes way further than I would go. So one thing that is a very well-documented trend is that there's an increase in applications for SSDI uh, during economic downturns. And sure enough, you saw a, a large increase in applications after 2008, you see a mild increase in uh, people qualifying and going on, but it's much, much, much smaller than the increase as a result of uh, the uh, the increase in applications. So people in the Social Security Administration know that this is going to happen. When there's a recession, they adjust. Your likelihood of getting on the program falls. Um, And there's a residual increase. It's hard to know how much that increase is, is due to the recession versus the recession putting people who would have qualified anyway in a position where they now want to apply and get on the program. So I think the idea that it's a long-term uninsured unemployment insurance program has been exaggerated in a lot of quarters. And there's a lot of good research to suggest that it doesn't operate cleanly that way. Uh, Jesse Rothstein uh, at Berkeley has a really clever study looking at the share of people who uh, applied for disability benefits after their unemployment ran out. And he found that there was no increase in disability applications uh, for, for people who were on long-term unemployment and, um, and then applied. Uh, and and then sort of uh, it, it expired and they they needed some other way to get by. That, that there wasn't a leap on effect from that onto disability insurance. Um, so it increases applications. It mildly increases receipt. But I really don't think that's the main story.
2: So I actually want to dig into the application process a little more because I think that's important. And I've learned a little bit talking to um, people on Medicaid who have applied for disability who have been denied. The impression I came away with, you know, from your piece, from my piece, is that it can be quite challenging to get disability. And I think it's actually important to the debate because it speaks to this question of are people just like showing up getting a Check or like, what is it actually like to apply for disability? Um, and like, what what process are you going to go through?
3: Sure. So the first thing to know is that there's a waiting period. So if you apply for disability when your disability is is developed, when you the onset of the disability, you don't get back pay for for five months after the onset of your disability. If you're sort of uh, if your application is approved five months later, so. Uh, there's some waiting period where you have to sort of wait out your application and you're not getting money. The other thing to know is that the key thing that they're checking on as part of this application process is whether you can engage in what they call substantial gainful activity, or SGA, which is this this really important term within dis- disability insurance conversations. Um, SGA is a given amount. Uh, currently, I believe it's $1,180 a month. Um, so really not that much it's it's barely poverty level mid teens of thousands of dollars a year if you can make more than that you definitely are not eligible because it shows that your disability is not work reducing to an extent that you need this program if you can demonstrate that you cannot engage in substantial gainful activity uh then you might be eligible so that means that when you're applying, you can't be engaged in substantial gainful activity. Uh, if during those five months when you're applying and and not getting benefits, y- you can't be working too much because then, by definition, you wouldn't be eligible for this program. So a lot of the people I talked to for the story described this period where they were just sort of waiting around without, uh, without earnings, without benefits from the program, and sort of relying on support from. From what meager savings they had, but mostly from friends and loved ones, uh, to survive. And so it's a it's a grueling application process, and there's a long appeals process for many people as well. That that a small percentage of people get approved on the first go, and then a lot of people appeal, uh, and and that can take months, if not years. That process, in and of itself creates a lot, of, uh, a lot of issues for people. It, it creates a period that they have to pay for that they don't have an obvious way to pay for. Uh, and people who worry about the effect of the program on work, like David Otter, have made the point that the more time you're waiting for your application to be approved and you're not working, that's the time you're out of the labor force that makes it harder for you to jump back in if you get rejected. And so partially because of that and partially just because even rejected people have serious disabilities – you see that, that people who get rejected are making, on average, uh, like eight to $9,000 a year, uh, which is not substantial gainful activity. That's below the level uh, that the program says you have to earn in order uh, to qualify for these benefits. And yet these are people who got rejected. And so you're, you're dealing with a vulnerable population and a population that remains vulnerable whether or not they get on the program or not. So one of the things that this
1: drives to. So 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 a couple of things here. One is that I, I was really struck by the data in your piece showing that in the areas where you have high prevalence of, of use of the disability program that maps onto areas of very poor health. So it's not just that we're seeing people who are disabled in those areas, but mortality and heart attacks and all kinds of other things that objectively show us what health is like there are showing that these areas have a real real issue. I found that very, very persuasive. But one thing I wanted to drill in on here is a little bit of, well, what are we trying to achieve? Because I think there's a, a continuous issue in social policy where Republicans uh, or, or just people, folks, will point out a problem with a program. And maybe that problem is true and maybe it isn't true. But what they always want is for if you solve the problem, then you've cut spending. And so there's a lot of people who want to cut basically all federal programs uh, that are non-defense – Saying they also want to cut disability insurance but then cloaking it in these other arguments, right? And in some cases you hear arguments about state flexibility and efficiency and here you get these arguments about, well, getting people back into the workforce. And something I was struck by reading your piece was that if your actual intention was to help people with real disabilities work, that you could structure a program to do that. But it's not cheaper. It's not just taking – disability insurance away from them. It's actually easing their way back into the workforce and supporting them and and doing these other things. And I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit because I think this is a place where the the conversation gets very confused. We could have more of a social policy effort to try to help people with disabilities work, or we could cut disability insurance sharply. But the effort to say that doing the two is the same thing is not true.
3: Right. So I think it's helpful for me, at least, in thinking about this, to think about the two things that people who want to reform the program want to do. So one thing you could want to do is reduce federal spending. Uh, and you can totally—it's it's a part of the federal budget. If you want to reduce the federal budget, you can cut anywhere. Um, but one thing to know there is that the story about demographics and about aging and about uh, women coming into the workforce— turns out to have been largely true. And now the number of people on the program is falling. Um, the share of people on the program is falling faster than the, the number of people who are falling on the program that's falling. Um, and as a result of that, in the long term, the expectation of, of groups like the Social Security Administration and the Congressional Budget Office is that this is going to cost about a constant amount over time. So the CBO found that the program cost 0.78% of GDP in 2016. They project that in 2027, it will cost 0.78% of GDP, literally to the hundredth point of the decimal the same cost. So I don't think it's an obvious place to start cutting the federal budget. So that leads to the other reason that people want to reform this program, which is that they think there are people on the program who could work and aren't working. And for whatever reason, those people... Sort of don't know their situation well enough to know that they would be better off working, and so have chosen to be on this program. And I'm totally sympathetic to efforts to to help disabled people work. And but I think if you talk to disability advocates and and people sort of who work in direct service provision, uh, the the barriers are are not that disabled people are like living high on the hog. The barriers are you need home care workers who help you do chores around the house uh, that you that are hard for you to do and are really hard for you to do when you spend time working. You need accommodations at your employer. You need a tight job market because um, just like all other vulnerable populations, um, sort of like black Americans, disabled people are the last to get hired during recoveries. Employers don't want to take chances on them. Um you want to offer transportation options because a lot of disabled people aren't able to drive on their own. Um, there are just like a lot of supports that you can offer. Um, you could offer a temporary or a partial disability insurance program that uh, supplements wages uh, but doesn't uh, re- replace them entirely. Um, but all those things cost money. It's really striking to me uh, David Otter and Mark Duggan often argue that the U.S. should model uh, a disability reform off of something that the Netherlands did in the 90s. Um, The Netherlands had, like, what I will even say was a genuinely out-of-control disability system. They had something like 12 to 15 percent of prime age men were on disability insurance, um, and it was was eating up, like, 4 to 5 percent of their GDP. And so they did this crackdown that looked a lot like Obamacare for disability insurance, where they mandated that employers buy temporary disability insurance for their workers. And then only after that was exhausted would people go on the rolls. And even despite all of that, the Netherlands spends twice as much, nearly three times as much on uh, disability benefits as we do. And in addition to that, They have universal health care. One thing that SSDI does is it gets you on Medicare. And so if you get kicked off the program, you lose your Medicare and you are likely uninsured if you can't get on Medicaid. Uh, They have uh, child allowances so that parents on SSDI or or parents on disability insurance, if they leave the program, still have a way to support their kids. Uh, They have active labor market policies to uh, encourage Uh, all people, but especially people with disabilities, um, to, to join the workforce and to support them. It's just like a comprehensive cradle to grave welfare state that will help attach you to the labor market if you need to be. And we don't have that at all. And the way the policy discussion is being conducted is as though we're just going to cut this program and everything will work out all right. And without adding another net to catch people who might be left behind. And I think that attitude comes a lot from the 90s experience with welfare reform, where I think the conventional wisdom in conservative circles was, we cut this cash welfare program and behold, uh, poverty did not explode. There were not children freezing to death on subway grates the way Daniel Patrick Moynihan predicted there would be. And, And so... Why not do this for other programs that we can we can crack down, force people into work um, and things will work out. And I think what we've learned in the years subsequently is that with welfare reform, stuff didn't work out. Extreme poverty exploded. Uh, the share of of single mothers who don't have any earnings or any welfare uh, payments doubled. The share of people earning two dollars a day of cash income increased. The share of people who are on food stamps, who tell food stamps under like threat of perjury that they have no earnings um has, like, quadrupled or something like that. Um, and I worry that if you try to do something similar with SSDI, you'd have similar sort of humanitarian calamity. I think it's also, and, and I promise this is my last point since I know I've been rambling for a while, it's also worth putting this in broader perspective. That I think one reason people worry about this program is that men's labor force participation has been falling for decades. Um, so uh, since 1967, The share of men aged 25 to 54 who are in the labor force fell by 8.4 percentage points. That seems like a significant problem. Uh, There's a lot of debates about what caused that. Um, Alan Kruger— Was it disability insurance? It is not disability (laughs) insurance. So um, Jason Furman, friend of the program, was on the weeds uh, back in the day, Uh, former uh, head economist for the White House, uh, did an analysis— Assuming that since 1967, SSGI just wouldn't rise at all. So he assumed, went to compare against a baseline where there was no growth in the program. Um, and then the people who were on the program worked at the same rates that disabled people who were not on the program worked at. So the idea is you take these disabled people, you take them off the program, you assume they act like the people who are disabled and are off the program. right? And this is a pretty conservative assumption, since the people who are off the program are definitionally disabled people who are more able to work. And so if anything, you would expect taking people off this program that they would work at lower rates. But in any case, if you do that, you see that SSDI can contribute at most 0.1 percentage points. So 0.1 percentage points caused by SSDI versus 8.4 percentage points uh, drop over the same period. So it explains Amazing. about 184th of the phenomenon. All right. So speaking of attachment
1: to the labor force, we have a white paper <laughs> that, that is very much about this this week. And Sarah, I think you should yeah. drive us into it. Okay. Administrative data.
2: So today we, we love Swedish administrative data here on the weeds, but I think Danish administrative data might uh, might vault into first place. Uh, because of how much we love this working paper. So this is a paper called Children and Gender Inequality Evidence from Denmark, from Henrik Klevin, Camille Landis, and Jacob—I'm going to pronounce this wrong egholt Sogard, I believe. Um, And what they do is a really interesting, um, really depressing analysis of the gender wage gap, at least in my view, where— they look at um, Danish administrative data from 1980 to 2013, and they really find so much of the gender wage gap is happens right at the moment when kids are born. Um, they have this amazing chart. I know charts are really great for audio, but I will describe it as best I can, where they show using—the um, great thing is they have all this administrative data so they can measure the earnings of men and women in Denmark— And they show what happens to earnings at the moment a first child is born. And for men, things kind of, you know, go on on a trajectory they're going on. It's a slight upward incline if you're looking at this chart. For women, there is just a nosedive in earnings that they never recover from. Um, One of the other really great charts in this, it also compares women who have kids versus women who don't. And it's the same thing. The women who don't have kids, they look really similar to men. Um, they don't really experience a big wage gap. But again, you see the two paths diverge at the moment that children are born. Um, this mirror, So this research is about Denmark, but it really mirrors um, very well a lot of the research on the gender wage gap in the United States. Um, Claudia Golden at Harvard, Marianne Bertrand at um, University of Chicago have published very similar work showing that what we talk about as a gender wage gap is increasingly better referred to as a childcare penalty or a child care wage gap. Um, one of the things they write in this paper is that they find in Denmark that the the fraction of gender inequality caused by child penalties has increased dramatically over time from about 40% in 1980 to 80% in 2013. What that means is in 1980 there were a whole bunch of things that tended to cause a gender wage gap. Women were not participating in the labor force as much. They were not getting as far in the educational system. There was more discrimination that they were fighting against. A lot of that seems to have faded away, by no means disappeared, particularly on the discrimination front. But women now graduate in higher rates from education from higher education than men do. Um, you know, they're increasingly entering fields that were male-dominated. The gender wage gap is becoming more and more so a story about what happens when children are born and the caregiving penalty that women experience. And, you know, the last thing I'd say, one thing I think that jumped out at us about this paper is that the research is from Denmark, a Scandinavian country that has very generous leave policies. One, you know, we think of, um, you know, when Ezra and I were talking about this before this show, we were saying, oh, if this were the U.S., we'd say, well, what we need is paid family leave and strong social supports. Denmark has all of that and yet they still have this this um this penalty for childbearing.
1: Can I quote the part of the paper that talks through the Denmark social supports? Because I just think it's good for setting the context of this. Um, Over the period we consider, they write, public child care is universally provided at a heavily subsidized price from around 6 to 12 months after birth. Until the child reaches the age where public child care becomes available, there is job-protected and paid maternity and parental leave. Up until 2001, parents were offered 14 weeks of maternity leave followed by 10 weeks of parental leave to be shared between the mother and father. Since 2002, this has been extended to 18 weeks of maternity leave and 32 weeks of parental leave. Um, They also have... Heavy subsidies to transportation, to elder care, to education. They have a universal healthcare system. So this is a, a true cradle to grave Scandinavian style welfare state
0: in which you are still seeing this penalty. But I, I think it's really, I think it's really important to draw some clear lines here because there's two, I would say almost unrelated phenomena taking place here. Right? One is that there is a huge earnings hit associated with being the primary caregiver for a child, and the second is that there is a large gender inequity in the assignment of who pays that penalty, right? And this paper, there is a way into the conversation in which you're saying the gender wage gap is the issue that we are looking at, And so then we're investigating where does the gender wage gap come from? The gender wage gap comes from the unequal distribution of the parental earnings hit. And another way of looking at it is like a family policy lens, which is like, why is there such a severe economic penalty for having children, right? Because one way to eliminate the gender wage gap would be if you could just like randomly assign it so that half of kids have dads as their primary caregiver, right? And so that would be good. It would be great for the statistical phenomenon of the gender wage gap. It would not help at all Um, women facing just pure gender discrimination in the workplace, which is like a concern that people have frequently. And it also wouldn't do anything about the fact that there's this huge financial penalty associated with having children, right, which I think is a social problem that is freestanding from the gender inequity piece of it, right? That if you look at the United States, if you look at most Western countries, people are having children at a below-replacement-rate level of population, right? And people who are doing the work of having children and raising them that allows society to continue over time are paying, like, a big net economic price for doing so— and trying to alleviate that is, like, one good thing to do. But part of what you're seeing in Denmark is that providing more support for parents doesn't change the fact that most of the parenting is done by by women, right? There's, like—there's th- just, like, two orthogonal well, questions here.
2: One of the things we have to get into, then, is the structure of Danish parental leave, sure. which we're getting— Finally. You know, if this would not be the weeds that we were not getting into— <laughs> Um, the structure of Scandinavian parental leave policies. So I think one of the things that's unique about Denmark's parental leave is most other Scandinavian countries, they kind of saw this happening. They saw they were giving people generous parental leave and they were saying, okay, parents, you know, you decide how you want to split it up. You know, it's kind of a decision for your household. And generally women would just take most if not all of the parental leave it didn't actually in, in a way it actually exacerbated the gender wage gap because you saw women out of the workforce for a longer time because you had these more generous leave policies that they were you know exclusively taking advantage of something you've seen happen over the past decade or so is most Scandinavian countries have started assigning a certain portion of their leave just to men. So it's kind of a use it or lose it situation. Um, Iceland has actually gone the furthest on this right now. The way their parental leave policy works is women get there. If you're in a heterosexual relationship, actually, even if you're not one parent gets three months, the other parent gets three months, and then you have three months to split up between the two of you in Denmark, there is no leave assigned to um, the male partner. Um, a woman could take all of the leave. And it, it is a lot of leave. Like we're talking about a year or so. And I, it's kind of interesting when you think of like, well, what are your policy goals? Um, I've been looking at Iceland's leave policies a little bit in depth lately for another project I'm working on. And in Iceland, they really wanted more gender equality. It wasn't just about, um, you know, making sure that kids had a good start. It was about having women and men have the same experience of parenting when a Child is born. Um, in Denmark, they have not decided to go as far as to say this is important to us and we want to change the norms of parenting through our leave policies. And so you see, I'd be really curious to see um, if someone wants to redo this study with Icelandic administrative data, which has not yet graced the weeds, but one great day, I'm sure. Well, it actually. I, I,
3: I worry it, about that to some extent. I mean, like D- Denmark is one thing. Iceland is a country that is half the size of Vermont, and extrapolating from it seems super difficult. Fair,
2: fair. I just, th- I think it's interesting to think about. You know, we often just talk about parental leave or maternity leave as a thing. You know, a, a thing that is good, but the details of the structure matter. They matter a lot. You know, they matter a lot in terms of what outcomes you're going to get from a parental leave policy.
3: I did think, like, one thing that was interesting in the paper was their proposed transmission policy. Um, This is sort of toward the end of the paper. Um, But they found that the work effort of the maternal grandmother was an important influence on sort of the labor supply decisions of of a parent. But the paternal grandmother was not a major influence.
2: So basically, if your mom worked or not in relation to, like, you— If the
3: mother's mom. Right.
2: Yes. The mother's having a baby. Right. Okay.
3: Right. So, so yeah. So, you look to your parent for norms. The husband's parents' norms don't appear to matter all that much. But if the mom's mom took some leave or versus, like, kept working versus uh, dropped out of working entirely, that seems to influence really strongly what, what her daughter does as a mother. Um, which— Interacts in an interesting way with what Matt was saying about there being some sort of fixed cost of parenting that you have to distribute. Um, in a way, what policies like Iceland's are trying to do is replace that sort of socially determined, like, division of expectations around uh, around child rearing um, that's sort of inherited uh, through the mores of the family with a state dictated division that is more gender egalitarian. And if that happens, one thing that could happen is what Matt is proposing, where in this graph, you see a big drop in earnings for women when they have a a baby and no corresponding drop for men. And so maybe what happens is you see a drop half that size for each gender um, in the hypothetical paper after, after some policy like that is put in place. But maybe you still have the effect of those cultural norms. And even with some some heavy sticks to push you in the direction of, of equality, it remains lopsided. Um, or maybe it's way more effective than we would think. And both of those curves look smooth and there's no sort of drop in, in work or earnings uh, for either gender.
2: These norms are so hard to break. One of the things that's interesting about Iceland, so you have three months for mom, three months for dad, three months to split – the months to split just go to the mom when you look at who takes leave. So I, I kind of lean towards unless you, like, literally beat people into changing these norms, they stay very, very similar.
0: All right. I'm going to offer two two reactionary points to put on the table. One is I, I'm not going to, like, go to the bank on this idea, but I think that we should give some credit to the possibility that there is, on average, a differential distribution of preferences for spending time with babies versus spending time at work between Mothers and fathers. Um, I think it. I think it would be silly to rule that out of bounds in advance. In particular, in light of what we're seeing about the persistence of these kind of uh, uh, child rearing patterns, the other thing that I think is is very important, just for for U.S. liberals to think about, is that there's a there's an important social class element to what aspect of family policy and family economics you really care about. Right. When I talk to sort of my peer parents in D.C., there is a lot of interest in, you know, having it all, so to speak, right? People have careers that are important sources of their personal identity, and it's very important to them to, to excel in that career and to make that compatible with, with other kinds of life goals they have. When I talk to people working in working-class service occupations who are parents, that's just much less likely to be the case, right? If you if you work at CVS, if you work at Starbucks, if you work cleaning people's houses, if you work taking care of other people's children, what you are much more likely to want out of family policy is more economic opportunity to work less and spend time with your children. I think you particularly find that among working-class mothers, but even leaving the gender aspect of it aside, right? Like, the question of, is your ideal to, like, have it arranged so that you can be at work whenever you need to be so that you can be a superstar versus is your ideal to have it arranged that you can be home whenever you need to be, right? Like there's a real – there's a real tension there and it's going to depend to an extent on like what are your – like what's your position in the in the class structure of the economy because – I mean, it just it, it makes a big difference. And I think that a lot of the sort of talk and messaging around this is naturally developed by people who are themselves in high status professional careers. And it's important to recognize that most people are not in those kinds of careers. And, you know, their primary interest may be, in fact, in their families rather than in their their sort of their careers. They're working because they need money. There's an interesting little fill in the in the paper.
1: And unfortunately, I didn't print this section of it out. But they find, they they look at the... In Denmark, they say it is well understood that the public sector provides a really great work environment, but at less pay and kind of less opportunity for for aggressive achievement. And what they show is that prior to having children, men and women's interest and and, and actual working in the public sector is equal. And then after having children, women become much more likely than men to work in the public sector, thus implying a a trade off for sort of quality of life, work flexibility, sort of work supports – over kind of pay and and um and advancement, which I think goes a little bit to, to what you're saying, Matt. If you're if your if your priorities begin to shift and just what choice you want to make changes. That's a choice that is, you know, sort of having it all, but also people want to make different choices, right? And, and one question is how do we how do we permit that? I also agree with your initial framing here. I one question is how do you close the gender wage gap? Another question is, how do you just make it not so punitive to have children? I mean we do have some programs in in America and, and you see them elsewhere that are direct payments to 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 parents who have children they're just not big compared to the cost of having a child. I mean the child tax credit does not equal the cost of of child care. You have other countries and and Dill knows a lot more about this than I do and, and maybe wants to jump in on it, we have universal child allowances, right, which are more generous than what we do here. But but, but again, don't, don't go all the way. And I think one question is in countries that have particularly declining birth rates, um, how much do you want to try to work on this as a tool of public policy? How much do you want to try to at the very least even out the question of saying, you know what? Having children, we consider society valuable work, and we are going to make sure um, as a country that you are not punished for it so that at the very least when you're thinking about that, the choice you're making is not between earnings and children. One could do that. I mean, we are rich societies. We have a lot of options here. But but to my knowledge, no one has gone that far in trying to make families, putting fully aside the the, the, the gender differential in childcare whole.
3: Yeah, I think – the question around child allowances is, is a good one because I think it highlights the extent to which it's inescapable how governments have to make choices about what kind of families they want to support. So one critique you often hear about the child tax credit and and related policies is even if they're really large, I, I think maybe the largest is, I think, Luxembourg's, which is something like four or $5,000 per kid. Um, that's still not enough for child care in a, a – really expensive city. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but I don't think that could could pay a full year. Um, <laughs> and, and so if you really want to help people afford child care, you set up a child care program. And a lot of Scandinavian countries have done that. Uh, it's typically implemented as sort of pre-K with the pre-extended very, very long. So you start some kind of education program when you're like one or two, and otherwise you have leave or or some child care policies um, that are sort of free at point of access or or heavily subsidized um, to bridge the gap. Um, But when you're funding that rather than funding a child allowance, you're saying that we value having both parents and a household working and that's the structure of family that we're, we're trying to subsidize here and i think there are totally legitimate reasons to subsidize that family type it's more gender egalitarian it uh it's more conducive to economic growth um partially that's kind of an accounting thing because sort of if you hire a childcare worker to watch your kid that's contributing to the formal economy whereas if you stay home to watch your kid that's not um, but I think like the difficulty of making policy here is, I think Denmark has a much closer shared cultural understanding about what what families they want to promote, um, and it's a very different conception than the one we have in the United States. And I don't think it was an accident that when we came close to getting a universal child care system in the 70s under under Nixon, he vetoed it, and in a veto message that was written by Pat Buchanan, that was basically. It wasn't even in arguing that it was fiscally irresponsible or, or a bad use of money. It was just saying this is the government teaching your children, and and it is a war against stay-at-home mothers. Um, and in our society, we cannot tolerate that. So wait, Sarah, you you you've just done
0: like a ton of, of gender gap. How how, how does this look? Like, what's the U.S. figures on this look like?
2: Incredibly similar. Um, so most of the there's two studies I really. Like um, in this area. One is from Claudia Golden at um, Harvard. And you can read um, about a year or so ago, we'll put this in show notes. I did a stick figure version of this talk she gave at the American Economics Association that I found the most clarifying thing I've read about why the gender wage gap exists. And she has charts in there that really show a very, very similar pattern. Um, They're not quite as clear as the ones in this one because we don't have the administrative data that um, Denmark has. But it basically shows the wage gap is very, very small when men and women finish their educations that um, a separate study by uh, Marion Bertrand at Chicago found that for MBA is I think um, women are earning 93 cents on the dollar to men, which is still a gap, but a pretty small one. By time you get to people getting into their 30s, the wage gap is at its biggest point ever. Um, and, And it just increases 30s, 40s. And then the wage gap starts shrinking, and the and when women hit their 50s, and what's happening then, kids are getting out of the house, going to college, and women seem to be participating in the workforce in a more significant way. So the patterns identified in this paper, I think if we had the administrative data on the United States, they would look very, very similar. Um, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot is government programs. I think the flip side of this, that a lot of the economists that I talk to— um, think about is the structure of work and how that responds to the fact of we have increasing number of two parent working households. Um, I really liked Heather Bush. She wrote a book a few years ago um, where she writes, we we have this workforce that was uh, developed with the idea of a silent partner at home, like the workforce that we all work in today. It kind of came to be when there was someone to manage all the stuff happening outside of work. And it's really tumultuous as we try and, like, move into a universe where we still have very, very similar hours and structures and expectations, but you don't have that other person at home. So I think that's also, you know, uh, some of this is government policy and some of it's corporate policy as well. Like, if companies decide it is worth the trade-off to have schedules that accommodate caregiving because they think they will keep talented people at their company, I think that is a struggle for a lot of companies right now and, um, you know, something that the government has some involvement with, with making it a little easier to tend to your caregiving responsibilities, but also something that rests in the hands of a lot of private businesses as well, how they want to handle this.
0: And I think also something that is in some ways made more difficult by the the transition to a predominantly personal services Economy. I mean, I, I think here at at Vox has has been a, a pretty family friendly environment, and our, our editor in chief Lauren Williams is, is a mother, and and uh, we have a, a lot of parents of young kids on staff. Uh, but we're also in a fairly unusual industry where we don't, by and large, like our output just floats on the internet, right? And like, you don't need to see like what state of dishevelment I am in when I write an article, if I'm running around or doing something at 4 a.m. as I was today or or something like that. So you can be very flexible, right? But if you are cutting hair or giving massages or taking care of the elderly or, you know, if you're performing in-person services, which so many people do as their work, it's challenging to just sort of be like, quote-unquote, flexible as a boss. Because, like, the people have to be there when the appointments are.
2: But it kind of depends, right? Like, one of the most interesting case studies I've seen on the wage gap was of pharmacists who had a huge wage gap in the 1970s when you had a lot of mom-and-pop pharmacy stores. And basically, like, like, you're saying, Matt, like, if you're not there to open the pharmacy, like, tough luck. People can't come to your house, like, where you're taking care of your toddler to get their drugs. But as pharmacies have increasingly become... Chains and you know you have CVS employing you know hundreds and thousands of pharmacists. You can schedule your hours a lot differently. You can kind of sign up. Like granted, you know you will have days your kids sick. You have to work around. But there, it, it pharmacists have become more um, interchangeable. It doesn't. You don't really care who's giving you your drugs. You just want someone at CVS. And I think in those in that sort of way, you know, you could actually see personal service jobs moving to reduce their gender wage gaps a little bit faster because the work that is being provided is less dependent on that exact person being there at a specific time versus, like, someone there to drive your Uber, someone there to give you a massage or fill a prescription. Yeah, but, like,
0: if you want to get your hair cut, right, just to say that, like, well, the salon has, like, a big, you know, efficient HR back end, and so, like, somebody will be there to cut your hair, I think people want the person...
2: Right. So I think then we get into like, well, what jobs does this apply for? Like right. hairstylists, maybe not as much. Pharmacists more. I Yeah, think retail a can do that.
1: There's a lot of jobs. That oh, no, 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 there that. are.
0: But I just mean, it's it's like it's a I think it's a problem, right? It's it's like there are good solutions to like schedule flexibility, but they're not solutions that like work in all cases. And it's worth noting that, that this plays out with the most
1: brutality lower on yes. the wage scale, where while it is a case that um, big companies could have this sort of pharmacist-like back ends, the actual trends we're seeing in the labor market are to this just-in-time scheduling, where people have even less flexibility. They don't know what their schedule will be for the next week before right. it happens. Um, they're often moved around really aggressively. I, I mean, there's a lot of really—you you could very much have thought, well, look, we have the internet now and telecommunications, and people can do things over the phone and over Skype, and there's going to be all kinds of ways to solve this. But in fact, if you look at the lower end of the labor market what you are seeing is less respect for the schedules of a lot of workers and so i mean if you're the corporation you understand why that makes sense but it is not good for for the people and it is very much not good for this problem cool. all right
2: on that optimistic note on that
0: optimistic note um, keep keep listening to podcasts.
1: Thank you for um, listening to the Weeds. Thank you to Matt and to Sarah. Thank you to Dylan for being on the show today. To our producer Peter Leonard, the Weeds is a Vox Media podcast for produ- production. You know and- what
2: I'm excited about from Vox Media? Our daily podcast. Oh shit!
3: What? Yes.
2: I am so excited for Today Explained which is launching on President's Day, February wow. 19th. If you have not
0: If you don't happen to know what President's Day is up <laughs> at the top of your head. This coming Monday, <laughs>
1: this is right? otherwise
2: known as this coming Monday. This coming Monday. Um listen to the trailer, subscribe on iTunes. I think you'll hear the three the four of us on there and Sean is hosting it. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's great. Re- it's
1: really awesome. It's so
2: good. Weeds fans are going to see. So yeah, it. you
1: can subscribe to it now wherever podcasts are subscribed to. And we would appreciate it if you did. That raises up the rankings. Make sure more people see it. So go do us a solid. Go look for Today Explained on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You have our personal guarantee that show really is going to be great. And, and you should be a listener.
0: And the Weeds will be back on Friday.